It is technically true that I am a murderer. I killed a man in cold blood. However, I still contend that it was a matter of self-defence. It's true that I had never before met this man, but I believed at the time that he would, in the future, form the intention of killing my wife, and that he was, in short, a serial killer of women. It then transpired that this man was entirely harmless. Even so, I don't believe myself to be guilty by fair and reasonable standards. No, but if you want a photograph of the fiend behind the killing, I have only to photograph myself. Allow me to explain. At the time it all started, I was working at the Institute of Theoretical Physics in Edinburgh. I had been revisiting some old French research on N-rays. You may recall that the French evinced a great flurry of interest in N-rays around the start of the 20th century. They were discovered by Prosper René Blondelot, a reputable researcher at the time, and confirmed by many others, until the whole thing was supposedly discredited by Robert Wood in 1904. The French researchers had believed these rays to be emitted by almost everything, including cathode ray tubes, and they believed the N-rays could be detected via their effects on electric sparks, in which they believed N-rays caused a certain increase in brightness. I had discovered this effect independently some years earlier, and I believed it to be a real, rather than a psychological or physiological effect, as Wood had claimed. After six months of research, I had hit upon a method for generating powerful beams of N-rays, so powerful that it seemed to me the time was ripe to reveal my findings to my colleagues. No one could continue to deny the existence of N-rays in the face of such overwhelming evidence. And yet I dithered. Blondelow's research was considered thoroughly discredited and I knew I risked making a tremendous fool of myself if this should prove to be even the slightest flaw in my work. I have always been known for the extreme meticulousness of my work, yet I still feared to reveal my discoveries, given the terrible blow to Blondelow's reputation. It was around this time that I received the first of the letters. It had no postmark, no stamp, and seemed to have been dropped by hand through my letterbox on Dundonald Street. The letter began by imploring me to read the entire thing, however unlikely the content of it may sound. It claimed that my research on N-rays would lead, in the space of only two years, to the invention of a time machine able to transport a person backwards through time. It claimed, furthermore, to be written by none other than myself two years in the future. It also said that there was a matter of great importance which the author would like to bring to my attention before it's too late, but that this matter could not be revealed just yet. 
It seemed to me quite obviously the work of a crank, yet whoever wrote it knew of my work on the N-rays, and I had told very few people about that. I continued to investigate N-rays at the lab, refining techniques for both generating and detecting the rays. A month later, the second letter arrived. The second letter told me to look for effects of the N-rays upon time itself. It suggested specific experiments, such as exposing a clock to the effects of the rays for 24 hours. The letter alluded to parallel realities and quantum theory, and asserted these effects could not be observed while they were happening. The clock must be sealed away from observation, and only observed later on. Premature observation ruined the whole effect, it said, and this was the reason for the failure of certain French experiments on N-rays. I was intrigued enough to actually try one of these experiments. I placed a stopwatch in a box and exposed it to the rays. 24 hours later I opened the box. The stopwatch was still running, but it had measured only 8 hours, not 24. I found that fruit, when placed overnight in the box, would typically have rotted completely by the morning. However, rotten fruit, astonishingly, would often be found to have reconstituted itself into fresh fruit by morning. A mouse, exposed overnight to the N-rays, appeared several months younger by the time I extracted it from the machine, having changed from a middle-aged mouse to a young mouse. A third letter arrived shortly after. It surmised that by now I must have noticed the strange and inconsistent effects of the N-rays upon time, and promised to explain the reasons for the inconsistencies. The letter proposed a meeting between myself and my future self, the author of the letter. It was signed as always in my own hand and with my own name. A return address was listed for a reply, a post office box. I replied suggesting a meeting in a cafe on Frederick Street, two weeks hence. The next letter arrived swiftly and must have been written immediately upon receipt of my reply. It agreed to the meeting, of course. I believed I was probably going to be meeting a lunatic, but this lunatic had informed me of some astonishing things, and I figured I'd be pretty safe meeting him in a cafe. On the appointed day, at the appointed hour, I found myself striding towards Frederick Street, thoughts whirling in my mind. All my subsequent experiments had produced startling, if confusing, results. I sensed I was on the verge of an enormous further breakthrough, or perhaps had already made such a breakthrough. I simply needed to understand the rhyme and reason in the unpredictable effects of the N-rays upon time. Why did the N-rays sometimes appear to reverse time, and at other times speed it up? At the door of the cafe I hesitated. What was I about to meet? Surely not my future self. I opened the door and looked around. There, sitting in the corner with his back to me, 
was a man who, from the back, certainly looked very like myself. Hers stood up on the back of my neck, but I told myself this could not possibly be me. The fraud would soon be exposed. I needed only to see his face and then I would surely find that this imposter was but a crude imitation of me, designed to fool me. I walked up to the table and set my gaze squarely upon the man's face. I froze in shock. There I was, sitting at the table. It was me. There could be no doubt of it. No plastic surgeon could create such a perfect resemblance. So here we are, he said, in an exact imitation of my own voice. Sit down. Then it's true, I said, falling heavily into a chair. Yes, he said, I am you, from the near future. How, I said. I will explain the intricacies of time travel in full, he said, but not here and not now. For the moment I can give you only an outline. We have other important matters to attend to. My head was swimming. I can only surmise that I am about to invent a time machine, I said, which I shall use in two years to arrive here. Precisely, he replied. The N-rays are able to fold time back on itself. You've already seen their effect on the speed at which time passes. They are capable of even far greater things than that. We discover the secret of time travel itself only six months from now. That is, unless I explain to you exactly what you are about to discover. But I fear that would deprive you of the pleasure of discovery. In any case, that's not what I came here to talk to you about. Then what? I said faintly. Robert, he said, only four months from now, a man will murder your wife, our wife. A serial killer. He's already obsessed with her. My God, I said, shocked to my core. Then we have to stop him. Exactly, he said. That's why I'm here. This man must be stopped, and there's only one way to do it. How? I asked. You have to kill him first. You can imagine my shock when I heard those words. The alternate Robert from the future explained that it wouldn't be enough to simply take my wife away from there. Her killer was an obsessive of the worst type. He would wait for our return and murder her in cold blood for his own twisted reasons that lay quite beyond the fathoming of any normal person. Were we to leave permanently, the interruption to my research would render it impossible for the future Robert to come back and warn me. The immediate past would be changed, and the killer would likely follow us and carry through his twisted plan a little later on. The only way to stop my wife being murdered with any certainty was to kill the killer. My future self could not undertake this task. It was of the utmost importance that he return to his own time as soon as possible and avoid disrupting the space-time continuum any further. No, I would have to kill the murderer. That raised the question of how best to do it. We had the advantage that no one knew of any connection between us and the killer so I wouldn't be suspected. 
my future self suggested that the best way to do it would be to waylay the killer in a certain dark alleyway that he regularly traversed, leap on him from behind and strangle him. I had severe doubts about the plan, but my future self assured me that the killer was a weak man and past middle age. He would offer relatively little resistance. He was a low-level businessman and accustomed to sitting at desks, not to fighting off attackers. For his work as a serial killer, if it can be called work, he made use of drugs and weapons, and exclusively targeted petite women whom he could easily subdue. My future self furnished me with a document containing a great deal of information about the killer's schedule and likely whereabouts on any given day. He lived in Dundee but frequently visited Kirkcaldy where he visited the house of his lover. On the way to this house he passed through a little frequented alley with no security cameras. That was where I was to perform the deed. I would have to suspend my research temporarily while I planned the execution, but my future self promised he would send a package of technical information back through time after the deed was done, and that would make up for the temporary interruption. After I left the cafe, I felt like my head was spinning. I wished I'd had more time to talk with my future self about things other than the murder our future research for instance, or even our shared past. How often does one get the chance to talk to oneself in the same way that one talks to a friend? The prospect of killing a man chilled me to the bone, but the chill was offset by a couple of vital factors. One was the knowledge that not only was my research going to be important, but it was my future self had informed me, going to render me the most renowned scientist who had ever lived. The work of Newton or Einstein would be as nothing compared to my discoveries. The other factor that gave me comfort was the sure knowledge that, even two years into the future, no one had yet discovered that I was the killer of this worthless human being, this serial murderer. In the future, as people became familiar with time travel, cases such as mine would be seen as a matter of self-defence, I reasoned. It would only be necessary to conceal my role in the killing for perhaps five or ten years. After three weeks of meticulous preparation, I was ready. I dressed in clothes as unlike my usual clothes as possible and took a bus to Kakodi. I walked to the alleyway and waited, crouching, behind a bin full of rubbish from a restaurant that backed onto the alley. He came along whistling to himself. My future self had provided me with instructions on how to find photographs of him, and I recognised him right away. There could be no doubt. He looked nothing like any stereotypical image of a serial killer, but of course, that was how he got away with it. No one suspected him. Had I and my future self not decided to tackle the issue, I imagined he would have gone to kill many more women. As he passed me, I sprang out and commenced strangling him. 
He half turned as I pulled the cord around his neck and started to struggle with me, slamming into the bin in the process, but it was over quickly. He sank into unconsciousness and I proceeded to tie the cord around his neck. I didn't want him waking up. It was as I was finishing that someone from the restaurant opened the restaurant door, doubtless to empty something into the bin. I had no choice but to split and run. They raised a cry as I neared the end of the alley, having seen the body. I managed to get back to the bus before anyone spotted me. As I was sitting on the bus, a thousand doubts began to overtake me. Could I be sure he was really dead? Wouldn't the police review video camera footage from the surrounding area? Would they figure out I'd got on a bus and trace me back to Edinburgh? In Edinburgh, I would change back into my usual clothes in some public toilets, and I would wait in there for an hour to reduce the chance of anyone connecting me with the man who had gone in. It was dark and any camera footage would surely be grainy at best, but still, if they were able to figure out who was going into the toilets, they would see that he never came out again and deduce that the murderer must have changed clothes inside. When I got off the bus I knew that I had to compose myself and I made a firm resolution. I simply wouldn't think about the matter anymore. As far as I was concerned, it hadn't happened at all. My wife was safe, the murderer would hopefully murder no more, and everything was as it should be. I would return to my groundbreaking research. The next day I couldn't help but check the news, even so. I had to do a bit of digging before I found an article that covered it. A man had been found dead in an alley in Kirkcaldy. That was my man for sure. He was dead as a doornail. The article mentioned that he had a wife and two daughters. I felt a horrible twinge of conscience, but I reminded myself that he was a murderer. He had lived a double life, devoted husband and father by day, twisted killer by night. After that, my research seemed to take a turn for the worse. I couldn't get the time experiments with the N-rays to work anymore. The promised documents from my future self didn't arrive, and I began to face escalating inquiries from my colleagues and the Institute's administration over the exact nature of my experiments. I decided to assemble the strongest proof I could of the existence of the N-rays and demonstrate the phenomenon to them leaving out the effects on time. But in the course of doing that, I uncovered certain flaws in my experimental apparatus, and I began to doubt whether the N-rays even existed at all. The thing that kept me going was the sure knowledge that I had met my future self, and talked with him. At some point in the future, I was destined to invent time travel. Or was I? Was it possible, I wondered? that the killing had so upset my mental balance that I was no longer capable of performing the necessary work. If so, could that actually change the future? If the future could be altered, 
did that explain why my future self had not sent back the documents? If my future self had travelled back from the future to alter the past, didn't that imply that all of the past could be altered? And where did that leave me? My wife, seeing my anxiety, tried to persuade me to see a doctor. I could hardly explain the matter to her. How could I expect her to understand the whole thing? It sounded preposterous, even to me. I started to doubt even whether I really had killed a man. I checked the news reports again. They said the same thing as before. Was it possible that I had invented the fantasy of killing a man after seeing those news reports? Otherwise, the coincidence of it all seemed too great. Eventually, I agreed to see a doctor since I was unable to sleep and these thoughts were endlessly and involuntarily looping in my mind. The doctor prescribed some tablets which seemed to help a bit. Perhaps they would have fully done the trick had I been allowed to take ten times the dose. I think it was the influence of these tablets that caused me to try to explain to the Institute's administration about N-rays. I even hinted at certain effects upon the passing of time. They promptly suspended me on full pay. They told me to take a sabbatical. My enforced idleness only caused me to ruminate further. I decided to do the very thing that I knew I should not do and revisit the scene of the murder. The alleyway looked very different by day, but I recognised it easily. Yes, I had killed a man there. Of that there could be no doubt. I returned there a total of five times, because it happened that every time after I had seen the alley, that very night doubts would start to set in about my own sanity. Then I would feel the desire to visit it again. I even tried crouching behind the bin in the same posture I had adopted when I was waiting for the victim. After some time even that wasn't enough. I decided to retrace my steps precisely at the same time of evening, even stopping by the public facilities where I had changed my clothes. You will think this mad and without purpose. Perhaps it was, but I was absolutely desperate to assure myself that it had really happened, if indeed it had really happened. Besides the newspaper report, I had no other proof. All other aspects of the case were bizarre and unbelievable and involved time travel, unproven experiments with unproven N-rays, and a visit from a future version of myself. I was struggling to believe the whole thing, and half wanted to hand myself in at the nearest psychiatric facility for evaluation. After crouching in the alleyway for an hour, I stood up and pulled myself together. Had I not lost my mind? I surely had and now I knew it. Whatever the truth of the matter, I had to stop this obsession. I knew then and there that this would be my last visit to Kakodi. As for the N-rays, I resolved to pursue them in my spare time as a hobby. I wanted my old life back, the life in which I was a respected and competent researcher, not a crazed murderer who believed in impossibilities. As I trudged wearily back to the bus stop, I passed a bar, 
and on impulse I decided to stop in there. Inside, I ordered a double whiskey and a pint of beer to wash it down. I wasn't supposed to mix alcohol with the pills, but to hell with that. I felt a sensation of relief as I drank. It was over. The madness was over now. It was then that I chanced to look over into the corner and I froze with fear. There he was, my future self, sitting talking to some woman. You, I roared. You owe me an explanation. Robert, now's not the time, he began, but I lunged towards him and in a second I had him by the neck. Get off me, you maniac, he shouted and he grabbed a glass and swung it against my head, hard. Doubtless he was panicked by my appearance. I was half drunk and furious beyond compare. Nothing he had told me would happen had actually happened. I had thought him, in other words myself, to perhaps have died in the future. Dave, screamed the woman, stop it. I fell back, holding my bleeding head. Dave, I said. Who the hell is Dave? Two of the drinkers in the bar turned out to be off-duty policemen, and they proceeded to intervene swiftly, otherwise I don't know what would have happened. When I refused to calm down, they arrested me. The drink and the pills acted like a truth serum once they got me at the police station, I suppose. The sensible thing to do would have been to play everything down, and make discreet inquiries later on. Instead, I told them everything. I confessed to the murder. What of this man Dave, who had so convincingly played my future self? He was none other than my identical twin. Unbeknownst to me, we had been separated at birth. He had learned of my existence from a newspaper. After a local journalist, printed an article on some of my more conventional work at the Institute. It was then that he spotted an opportunity to rid himself of the man with whom his wife had been having an affair. So mundane, so stupid. She had been planning to leave him for this man and had told him as much. She was only waiting for the man to leave his wife which was proving to be a drawn-out business, as these things tend to be. Dave was no scientist, but he had inherited the same streak of meticulousness from our father that so prominently expressed itself in my research. He set to work to find out everything possible about me, and even managed to get into my laboratory at night and photograph my personal lab notes. Of course, he rigged all the experiments, that he suggested I do, swapping around apples and lab mice and whatnot. The idea of pretending to be from the future had suggested itself to him via some unholy combination of my lab notes and some idiotic sci-fi film he'd seen. All of this emerged during the investigations that follow my confession. And so you see, this man David is surely at least as guilty as I, if not more so. Unfortunately, the police made the mistake of not arresting David when they had the opportunity. Apart from that, their work was flawless. Alas, this was a big flaw. 
David disappeared, and now they are claiming he doesn't exist at all. Some sort of dreadful mix-up has supposedly occurred. The original investigating officer has been reassigned, and the Institute no longer responds to my letters. It's quite obvious what has happened. You will have already figured it out, I'm certain. The government is trying to cover up the existence of N-rays and time travel. They mean to destroy me even more completely than they destroyed Blondlow. They won't succeed. More people may arrive from the future at any moment. Together, we will prove my innocence. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this story, it helps me massively with the algorithm when you subscribe to my channel, so I want to ask if you wouldn't mind, could you invent a time machine and go back a couple of months and then subscribe to my horror stories when I first started creating them? That would be ever so helpful, thank you. And if you have any particular topics that you enjoy hearing about, do let me know. My name's John and this has been Science Horror.